that's the uh, best place to go on vacation, the best place to eat dinner, best place to do this, to, to do that. Um, I, I had one of the most emotional discussions and arguments I ever had was which was better, Star Wars or Star Trek? You say, are you serious? Yeah, and I won because it's Star Trek, so you'll know. Uh, <laughs> forever and ever, amen. No, that's just an opinion. But there are so many people in our world today that will live their entire life and all of their emotional energy is thrown into those kinds of opinions. And I'm here to tell you this morning, and what God, I believe, sent me to tell you is that God absolutely believes in absolutes. Well, you know, I'm... I don't even know if I can say it that way because God doesn't have to believe anything. God knows. Because, you know, God has no such limitation. We have things we believe that we can't necessarily always prove or disprove, and we have those things as priorities in our lives that we can't really sometimes explain why. But God doesn't have to believe. He knows. He has no limitation on belief where He has to believe something it's because to God, everything hidden is as bright as sunshine. So let me put it this way. God wants us to believe in absolutes. And it wasn't that long ago that most people did. They believed that there were some things that were always true, some things that were always false. They believed that there were some things that were always right, some things always wrong, some things always good, some things always evil. And I'm talking about everywhere, every place, all the time, they were absolutely true. People believed that. And, you know, you go back to a culture now that says, no, no, it's not like that. See, I wanted you to know, and I believe God sent me to tell you today that there are some things that are non-negotiable. And God's truth, all of God's truth, God's truth, all real truth, is absolute. All real truth is non-negotiable. But maybe you've noticed that we live in a world <clears throat> that claims there are no absolutes. They'll claim that there's no such thing as a non-negotiable, that somewhere, somehow, sometime, everything has to have wiggle room. And because of that, families, individuals, churches, even governments, uh, schools have been dragged, some kicking and screaming, into an age where everything is up for grabs. Everything is negotiable. The, the, and the modern sage, if you will, of the modern age, those talking heads on TV that know so much, they started off just suggesting that everything was negotiable, and then they, they kind of accepted that everything was negotiable, and then, then they concluded that everything was negotiable, and now they flat demand, hey, everything's on the table. For everything forever, there is wiggle room. For everything forever, there's gray area. For everything, we can't have this whole idea of black and white, right and wrong, good and evil. Well, God knows better, and He wants us to know better. So the question really should arise as we're thinking about these things. What happens to a society? What happens to a family or an individual or even a church that tries to live a life without absolutes? What happens to a family that tries to go through life where everything has wiggle room, where nothing is non-negotiable? Because Scripture says in Psalm 11.3 that if the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? We've got to have some things that are foundational, that are true for everybody, all the time, everywhere. What, what does it look like, though, when a society or a family or even a church starts to, to, to travel down that road where everything's negotiable? Can we recognize that process? And then once we do, uh, how do we, do we have any hope of reversing it? How would we reverse it? What can we do to change it? Well, I believe in Romans chapter 1. If you'd open your Bibles there, Romans chapter number 1. And we're going to begin reading in about verse 18. 
Romans chapter 1 is a wonderful picture of exactly that. What happens to people, to individuals, to societies, to churches when they start trying to live this whole uh, loosey-goosey, nothing's really true, nothing's really false kind of a thing. You know from Romans, if you've read it, uh, one of the places almost everybody understands and everybody knows is this verses 16 and 17 where Paul simply says, I'm not ashamed of it, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Well, we all know that part. But now verse 18 is where God starts to show us what happens when a society abandons the truth? Look at verse 18 with me. We're going to read all the way to verse 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now we're going to read the rest of that chapter in just a little while, but I want us to start right there because God in His Word, has given us His eternal standards. He, we know that He's talking about right and wrong. When God's speaking, there is a good, there is an evil. And yet Paul here identifies and describes for us a society, and, and it begins as he follows on here, a spiraling down of morality, a spiraling down of sensibility, a spiraling down and a wasting of purpose even, when a nation, when an individual, when a church unhitches or unhooks or, or, or unhinges from God's Word. If you leave behind God's truth, if you'll leave behind the non-negotiable foundations, the results are always going to be both obvious, but they're also going to be ugly and they're going to be catastrophic, whether it's a family, a church, a nation, or a culture. And the process begins, as it says here in verses 18 and 19, when sinful men, now hear this carefully, when sinful men willfully choose to reject the truth, it's obvious all around them. Look at verse 18 again. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. The scripture tells us in the book of Psalms that the heavens declare the glory of God. You can't look around this creation and not see the fingerprints of deity everywhere you look. You can't look around this universe and not see that somebody had to do it. Somebody had to create that. But you look at verse uh, where it says there, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, verse 18. And again in verse 20, since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. <clears throat> you can't miss it if you'll just look for it. It's as glaring as it could possibly be. And, and I've told you before, I know a little bit about science, and, and I know some of the process of observation and how you're supposed to, science is supposed to work anyway. So, but I can tell you without hesitation <laughs> that you have to try to miss it, to miss the fingerprints of God on this universe. You have to try to want to there to be no God for you to come to that conclusion. I'm talking about you approach something with your eyes closed and your ears like this, dabba, 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 don't talk to me, I got my mind made up. You have to be in that place to miss the Creator 
as you look at creation. To avoid the obvious conclusion that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so as you do that, verse 22 says it so profoundly, so clearly, simply professing to be wise, they became fools. And so the answer to the question of how did all this happen, it was some kind of false religion or it was some kind of science so-called. And those things that have risen over the years, thousands of years and now into our day, have substituted any number of idols and gods to replace the true God. Whether in the old, old, old times where it was Horus or Marduk or Allah or Mithras or, or in our day the, 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 the myths and, and the Big Bang and the multiverse generator and the, the landscape and, 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 and all these other crazy things. Strange and foreign idols and deities. They would rather accept those than accept the truth of God's word, the truth as God gives it. And so beginning in verse 23, the wrath is revealed. The hammer falls. And nobody can say it's unfair because as it says back there in verse number 20, it says they are without excuse. So whether the ancient icons, the pantheon of the old gods that they had back then, the titans and such, or the modern pantheon of atheism, it opens the same door. And this is the door it opens. Begin with me in verse number 24. God's wrath is going to be revealed. The spiral begins as they head down this broad road of destruction. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, or in the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to depraved mind to do that, those things which are not proper. And, and I'm, I'm going to finish reading it, but I want you to notice in verse 24, God gave them over. In verse 26, God gave them over. In verse 28, God gave them over. It's almost as if on this long, slippery slope, the spiraling down I'm talking about, there were these stops where God would stop them if they had any good sense. But when they start to go that direction, God would move or stop, and they'd start to slide. And the result was this wrath that you read here. And if they didn't turn and claw their way back up by crying out to God for repentance and salvation, he would remove another stop. And on down they go. God gives them over. God, give, God gives them over. God gives them over. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, evil, disobedient to parents. Sound like some bad folks. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Sounds like an eventuality best to be avoided. In other words, as you read that, you can say, wow, bad. I see it. That's not hard to see. It sounds bad, but the thing is, it sounds kind of familiar too. Did you see all that about the women exchanging the, or the degrading passions and then the women exchanging the natural function, the men exchanging the natural function? Sounds like every society down through history that abandoned God. You see, the things that we see in our society are more symptoms than the cause. The cause was abandoning God and running away from God's truth. The symptom is what we see in society. We can't go out and fix the symptom without fixing the cause. So... 
abandoning truth, abandoning God's righteousness, it would be best to get off that broad road, right? I mean, that, that's pretty obvious. But how? How can a society, how can a nation, a family, even just a single individual, but especially a church, um, how could we get off of that kind of a downward spiral? Because I can tell you, it's a greasy slope. And once you're on it, it is a, it, it's a, it's, 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 whip, and you're gone. But can we? Can we do that? I believe we can. Because we've recognized the process now. How do we avoid the spiral? How do we climb off, if you will, altogether? I mean, if we find ourselves on it. This is how. And I'm going to finish this thought, but let me start with this. We get off of that greasy slope, and we cure this problem with society by laying aside our right to wiggle room. When we've decided that I no longer have the right to, to my gray area, that, yeah, I know you say it's wrong, preacher, but for me it's not wrong. That's a gray area. You know, no, it's not a gray area. We've got to surrender that so-called right to a gray area. It's time we as individuals and we as a church across America leave behind our right to make our own little rules and expect God to bless the mess that we produce. And yet that's what we expect Him to do. God bless my mess anyway. Uh-uh, that's not how it works. Now, we all have to settle some things once and for all. I mean, we need to make some decisions that will last. And the way we do that is by agreeing with God that His truth is the truth. It's not hard to find it when He's put it here in black and white. I mean, we in our nation are so blessed that we have it in, in Scripture. And it's, it's everywhere. Most of us have more than one Bible even in this, in this room right here, probably. We go to other countries and there's one Bible for, for a village. And they're still trying to learn God's Word, still working and loving God's Word. It's time for us as a culture, as individuals, to make up our mind that there are things that are always right. And there are things that are always wrong. And because God's the one that gave us these conclusions, they're pretty firm. We can count on them because they're non-negotiable. They're foundational because they're non-negotiable. But hey, it's final. I don't have to prove it. It's final. It's already non-negotiable, at least, in my life. But it's non-negotiable in all of the universe as well. And let me just give you some of these. When, when, when we live according to God's non-negotiables, I'm telling you, we're, we're going to win. When we live according to God's non-negotiables, we will win. And when we don't, we're going to lose. And the reason is making these big foundational, uh, non-negotiable kind of decisions, it, it'll make all the other decisions of life so much easier. I mean, once I've decided that I'm, uh, this is settled, I don't have to go back and, and, and re rehash it every time. Now, I could easily make a long list of these kind of foundational decisions, but I don't want to spend a whole lot of time uh, just kind of ticking off a list because I want us to remember just three or four because these are the ones that are going to be so foundational. These are the ones that are going to be so essential. These are the ones we need to have in place every day. And they are the ones that would be the non-negotiables about who we are. That is our identity, the non-negotiables that God says that we should have and we do have about our identity. And so I want to kind of give you four or five here that are I am statements. I am statements about you and about me. If we're following Christ, these are the things that will be absolutely foundational. So what are those four or five foundational non-negotiables? I just want to suggest, let's say, four or five. <clears throat> Let me start off with one that it, it, it's, it's <laughs> if any man is in Christ Jesus, he's what? A new creation. Old things have passed away and what? 
New things have come. All things have become new. The most basic bottom row. If you're building a, a foundation and the bottom row of that foundation, the, the, the concrete you're going to pour first, number one is an understanding for not just for me, but for anyone who wants to follow Christ, is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. You should be able to look yourself in the mirror every morning as you're getting up and say, you are a new creation. Or say it the way I meant it, or I am a child of the living God. I am a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You can look yourself in the mirror and without any hesitation say, I am a blood-bought, spirit-filled, born-again child of the living God. That's my identity. That was yesterday, tomorrow, and today. It's true about anybody in Christ Jesus. I'm talking about Sunday morning at 11.42 a.m. or on Tuesday afternoon at 7.15 or even on Friday night about bedtime. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am a disciple of the Lord Jesus. I'm a believer in God through Him. Christian, that really is your number one identity. That's the number one most important thing about you. Because that's going to determine whether or not you live forever. That's going to determine your, 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 your forever, uh, where you're going to live forever. Your highest identity is as a believer, as a Christian, before American. You understand? I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I think the word's patriot. But before I'm a patriot, I'm a Christian. And by the way, that wasn't the football team patriot, okay? I'm an actual, like, okay. <clears throat> but before I'm an American, I'm a Christian. Before I'm a, a Republican or a Democrat, I'm a Christian. Before I believe in Chevys or Cadillacs, I'm a Christian. Before I'm a man or a woman, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be my number one identity, my base reality, my eternal final authority. And because no one can earn it, I don't deserve any credit for it, but anybody can receive it. And all of you, all of us who have called on the name of the Lord Jesus, we need to live in this truth and remember that it is non-negotiable. It is eternal. It is and ever shall be our identity. We remind ourselves of this truth every time we pray and we say, Our Father, which art in heaven. We remind ourselves of this truth every time we pray, Thy kingdom come. We remind ourselves of this truth every time we say that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so when I face temptation, and by the way, when you're a preacher, you don't face less temptation as a preacher. Just in case you're wondering. Oh, you're a preacher. You don't ever have that problem. <laughs> Guess again. What was that about? Okay. Um, and when I face temptation, when I face those wiggle rooms and those gray areas, I mean, I, I have the same temptation you do to gossip. I hear something that's real juicy. I think, wow, I'd like to tell somebody about that. I have that same temptation. But when I face that temptation, I can ask myself, would a child of God do that? Would a child of God participate in that kind of sensuality? Would a real born-again believer follow after that anger and lust and pride? Could I, as a child of God, do that? Now, I'm not talking about putting legalism on yourself. I'm just saying you look at it and say, you know, this doesn't match my identity. I don't think I can do that. I don't want to do that. I'd rather not do that. That's not something that I want anybody to find out I did. By the way, do you remember when you used to be told, don't do anything you wouldn't want your mama catching you doing? I remember that. And I always, I didn't ever picture my mama in the back seat when I'd go out on a date, okay? But I did keep that in mind a few times. Would, my, would I do this if my mama was here? Well, guess what? Jesus is here. 
He sees everything we do and He's right there helping you to live out the identity that you have now as a born-again child of the living God. And it's so much better for us as we can honor God by, by the things that we do and the things that we don't do. So when I come to a moment of decision, excuse me, of decision. I'm in a hotel room somewhere all by myself and there's all these channels I can watch and I can watch something nobody's ever going to know. Hey, would my identity as a Christian allow me to watch that? I go into convenience stores today and there's wine right there on this shelf. You know what? I could buy that. Sonia would never know. I could drink it in my truck. The post office would never know the difference except when the truck started doing this. There's all kinds of things that you could do but my identity doesn't allow me to because I'm a born-again child of the living God. And I'm not putting legalism on anybody. I'm just telling you you can use that as a way to stop yourself from falling into sin and getting on that greasy slope. Because I can do that, sure, but will it enslave me to sin? And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, Jeff mentioned it this morning, 1 Corinthians 7.23, You are bought with a price. Do not be slaves to man. If you will settle this issue, that God says I'm a new creation and that's who I am, most of the temptations will lose their power and the bite of sin will lose its ability to bite you. So that's number one. That's pretty foundational. What's the second one? This is really, for, not for all of us right off the top of our heads, but you'll see why I use it next. Because after your relationship to God, number two is your relationship with your spouse. The I am of I am a believer, I am a Christian. Well, the next one is the marriage vow. Because that marriage covenant is so foundational. It is a non-negotiable. In fact, it's so foundational that God says those two shall become one flesh. And, and, and please, when I say, I'm not here to say, well, I'm married, so I can't do that. That's not what I'm talking about. Or here are these people that say, well, I have a wife. That's not what I'm talking about at all. And I, haven't you heard people for years say, well, you know, my old lady would be mad at me if I did that. And I would think, your old lady... Or my old man, I, he's, some, I, he's having trouble with the old man. I think, really, are, he's your old man, you're his old lady? Is that how it works at your house? That's not how it works at my house. That's not how it works in God's Word. That's a, kind of a dumb thing to say anyway. But you see, when I look at myself in the mirror, I don't see myself as a married man. Let me put it to you very carefully. I do not look at the mirror and see myself as a married man. I see myself, I am a husband. Is there a difference, Brother Robert? Yeah, absolutely. Sonia doesn't look at her, herself in the mirror and say, I'm a married lady. She knows that she is a wife. See, in 1983, we approached a marriage altar. And up one alley, alley, <coughs> up, the, <laughs> up the aisle came a man and a woman. Down the aisle together went a husband and a wife. And there was a supernatural change in that moment. And if you're not ready for that kind of fundamental supernatural change, I just want to tell you right off the bat, you're not ready to get married. Until you settle this issue, you're not even ready to obey the commands of Scripture because the commands of Scripture in Ephesians 5 that say husbands love your wives and wives be submissive to your own husbands. Listen, until you're ready to make this foundational commitment to say, well, that's who I'm going to be the rest of my life. I'm going to be a husband or I'm going to be a wife. And unless you're there... And I'm talking about everywhere I go, everything I do, whomever I meet, I am a husband. That doesn't change. It's a foundational issue. While Sonia lives, while I live, it's fundamental. If you're unmarried right now, in the, this is for you in the future, but it is foundational. There's no wiggle room to this. 
It's non-negotiable. I am a husband. So I settle some things in my life real easy. I make a lot of decisions real quickly. Number one, the lordship of Jesus. There's no gray area to that. I am a born-again child of God. And number two, I'm a spouse. You can say that whether you say wife or husband. I am a spouse. I am or I am not. There's no wiggle room there. And directly from there, we can see our next duty, which is really pretty easy to get to from that. And that is, I will always be the son of my parents. I will always be the father of Zerbeth, Aaron, and Susan. I have to do it that way or get them out of order. I will always be the big dad to three little boys. My life decisions can be made by simply listening to and obeying God's rules and God's truth. In fact, one of my favorite ones is an Old Testament law that people kind of seem to forget about. And it's uh, the fifth commandment, I believe it is, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your, your God gives you. That's a command, but there's a promise involved. In fact, it's the first command with a promise. Because the promise there is if you will honor your parents, if you'll honor your father and your mother, not only will you be blessed, but your land will be blessed. You'll be a blessing. Your land will be blessed as a result of honoring these family relationships. I'm convinced that some of the biggest problems in our society, I'm talking about in our culture, I'm talking about in our cities, and our churches, it's because of the disconnect that we have between the, or the lack of honor that we see coming from children to parents and from parents back to children. Sons and daughters talking about mom and dad. And whether you say, well, that's because of the schools, or that's because of the internet, or that's because of the TV, or that's whatever... I, in our day, the generation gap has become a generation canyon. It's ridiculous. We've got to make up our minds for ourselves that when we see ourselves, we know I am a son of that woman, that man forever. I'm going to honor them. I'm the dad of that young lady, that young man, that young lady forever. Those boys are always going to have to deal with this big dad. Those are God-given, God-ordained, God-ordered identities. And we need to settle that. If we want to stay off that downward spiral, just start ticking them off. I'm a new creation. I'm a husband. And if you're not a spouse yet, I'm at least a son or a daughter or an uncle or an aunt or, or whatever. They're set. They're non-negotiable. Only then, only then will we be ready to move on to the next step, which is serving God in His kingdom. The Scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, and I know I'm going all over the Scripture today, but please bear with me. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible says that God gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. God gave them to the church, to the kingdom. And Romans eleven twenty nine 29 tells us that His gifts and His callings are not subject to change. They are irrevocable. They are, to coin a phrase, non-negotiable. But you're not ready to take up the mantle of God's call onto your life. You're not ready to take up the mantle of God's gift or God's vocation until you have settled... Number one is this new creation, bought with the rich, red, royal blood of Jesus. I know that. I'm rightly related to God, but then I'm rightly related to my family. And then, and only then, can I be rightly related to the kingdom of God. It's in that order. And when you get it in that order, then you're ready for the vocation or the calling that God has for your life. And God may have called and created you to be a minister, but He just as likely could have called and created you to be a mechanic. Not all of us need to be ministers. We can all share our faith, but some of us need to be able to fix cars or we'd all be in a fix, wouldn't we? Did I put fix in that sentence twice? Some of us are called to be plumbers. Some of us are called and created to be pastors. Some of us are called and created to be deacons. Some of us need to be dentists. Some of us God's created to be evangelists and some educators. This thing, this, this calling, like your family relationships, will be somewhat unique to you. But I know 
the identity that God's given to me. Now, you know I work for the Postal Service, but I have never said I am a mailman. I have a job where I carry the mail. I am a born-again child of the living God. I am a, a husband. I am a grandfather. I am a preacher. I am a seed sower. I am a song singer at times when, when, when brother will let me. I am an evangelist at times. Those things are non-negotiable, non-negotiable. But I have to know that identity, and only then. Let me quickly give you the fifth one, and then I'll close this thing out. Touch briefly here. God not only has done these four things, not only given us those four identities, but there's a fifth one. And that is God never planned for us to be Lone Ranger believers. Scripture tells us we are members of one another. Let me give you that exact from, from Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 25, the Bible says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And then Ephesians 5.30 says, Because we're members of his body. And Hebrews 10.25 is that one that all of us know that says, Forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. There needs to be a foundational, fundamental, non-negotiable choice made that I am a member of a body. I am a member of those other people that God has placed around me. I'm a member, and with all that that means in terms of benefits and all that means in terms of responsibilities. Now, like I said, I could go on and on with all these different I am's, but I'm here to tell you, if we'll settle these, these few issues, it'll make so many decisions so much easier for us. If we will look at these things, starting off with I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and from there make plans, from there make my goals, based on the facts of my identity in Christ, I'm caring, I'm, it'll revolutionize your life. It'll revolutionize your family. It'll revolutionize this church. And I'm bringing this message today really as an invitation from God for all of us, for all of us to answer. Because I know I've lived here long enough and I've spoken to enough of us that I know that many of us have experienced that greasy, slippery slope, that downward spiral that sin sets us on. It seems like it's always greasing the skids. And that spiral is so destructive destructive to our spouse, to our, to our families, to our society, to our church. How could we stop it? Could we reverse it? How can it be healed? Even, even better, how can we prevent it? Well, I'm going to invite you, and I believe God is inviting us today, <clears throat> to drive a new peg. And I mean by that to have a point of spirit-empowered decision, because you can't make these decisions except you're empowered by Almighty God to make them. You're going to need help, okay? But the idea is you come today and say, today I'm going to live like I really am a born-again child of the living God. Today I'm going to start living like I really am that spouse, that husband or that wife that God created me to be. And you drive a new peg to say, that's the day I quit wiggling. That's the day I quit playing in the gray areas. Remember when we used to sing, I surrender all and we meant it? I'm convinced we need to once again become comfortable in this altar. Many of us have gotten to the place, well, I don't need to go down there. I can just pray here. To... Yeah, you can. You can pray at your chair. That's fine. But there are moments when we have to say, God, as of this day, I'm driving a new peg. I go to that altar to show my dependence upon you, or I go to that altar showing, renewing my repentance, or I go to that altar revealing my desperation for a change in this society, this family, or this church. And the idea is I've surrendered enough I'm serious enough that I don't care who sees me do it. 
I don't care if somebody sees me weeping tears or, or they wonder, I wonder why they're down there. If they love you, they'll come help you pray, not judge you. One last thing. You, you, you may think, and, and maybe as I've been preaching, you've thought, you know, Brother Robert, I hear what you're saying, but my sin, my little compromise, my negotiation with evil, it affects only me. It's not hurting anybody but me. It's my business and my business only. You stay out of my face, preacher. I'm here to tell you that's not true. Because your spiral down will hit others. Your spiral down will harm others, whether it's family or the whole society. Your spiral down may hinder others that are reaching for God. And God is speaking to many this morning that it's time to start fresh. It's time to embrace the identity that God has already given you and say from today, my identity, I'm a believer. I'm a spouse. And if not yet a spouse, I'll remain chaste and pure until I am a spouse. I am a family member. I am called to serve in the, whatever the vocation or calling God's given me. I'm a church member. So my question, first of all, as I close, are you saved? Only you know. If you have been born again, you have decided to follow Jesus, have you followed Him first in believer's baptism? There are some of us that need to do that. Or maybe you're here and you need to join this church. Whatever God's calling you to do or putting on your heart this morning, some of us just need to simply Come again to God's altar and drive that peg. Settle the issue. Make a brand new start. Because God's offering that brand new start today. And He will meet you when you come. Let's pray. Amen.